putting up new buildings. We're knocking down the old. We're working in the summer heat and in the winter cold. And the labour power we sell, me boys, for a hard and weekly pay, produces mighty profits for the greedy MBA. And whether we were born here or born in Italy, in Greece, in Spain, or Ireland, in England or Fiji, we all of us are workers united. We must stand until the wealthy bludgers have been driven from our land. Welcome to Creatures of the Industry, an ongoing series of oral history interviews with the people who made the building and construction industry in Melbourne and regional Victoria since the 1960s. These podcasts are sponsored by the Concrete Gang in cooperation with Community Radio 3CR. And break a couple of concrete pores to back our log of claims. So keep your powder dry and hold your head up high. It's glass to glass and face to face, our limit is the sky. And greetings from Creatures of the Industry, a uh, program which uh, tries to get the uh, thoughts and experiences of people who have been a very integral part of the industry over a long period of time. And today we're in the Latrobe Valley. It's grey, it's foggy, it's cold, and I've got Tom Malone with me. Good morning, Thomas. How are you? Hello, Ralph. How are you? Very good. Now, we have basically known each other for a very long time. When we probably first met, we don't remember. We're in the same job, in the same shed, smoke on lunchtime, and for many years we didn't even understand that it happened. Yeah, well, that's right too. Um, we talked about it many years later that uh, we actually both recognised each other from memory um, years later that we used to walk past and uh, I can remember the cribbats um, at Carrum you're talking about. at The, the Southeastern Purification Plant, uh, yeah. otherwise known as the Carrum Shit Farm. That's right. I remember um, walking past you many times um, now, but... Uh, we didn't actually meet at the time, but I remember walking into the um, the crib hut and the BLs were the first group on the left and the plant operators were the next group around and we'd walk past each other a couple of times a day, of course. Yes, and uh, that was probably my first big job, but I don't think it was your first big job. So how did you come into the industry and uh, where was it and what were you doing at that time? Yeah, okay, well, um, I left school young. I left school at 15. And um, my parents sent me to a Morris Brothers College and I didn't like the Morris Brothers and they didn't like me. And I left school early and uh, I did a bit of messing around for tyre fitting and stuff like that first. And But I always wanted to drive plant. So I got taught to drive a face shovel, which is, you know, you don't hear of many of them now except in mines. And then I got my first chance after I'd been taught to drive the face shovel was working on a job called Lake McCowan, which is a, a channel job. And it's um, a, a dam built uh, near Benalla in northeastern Victoria. And uh, that would have been living away from home? Uh, not, not at that stage, no, because no. um, my parents had moved to Wangaratta. Even though I'm a Gippslander and they were Gippslanders, they'd moved to Wangaratta at that stage and um, I was living in Wangaratta. So that was how I come I started off up there. Right. 
So you came to Melbourne yeah. as a plant operator. What year was that? Do you remember? Yeah, it would have been. Um, I would have come to Melbourne in '69. I'd already done that first job at Lake Macowan and cut my teeth, but I knew a couple of people, which is how it is in the game. I got a bit of a leg up and they showed me a few tricks and, and you go from there. And when I came to Melbourne, I got a job on, well, what we called the first two mile, and it was in, still miles in those days, of what was then called the Mulgrove Freeway. That was uh, from Brady Road at the top of the hill, if you go up from Stud Road, out to GMH at the Dandenong Highway. And uh, now called the Monash. Yes, yes. And even as I drove down here today, they're still working on it. Yeah, well, I could tell a little bit of a story about that job if you want me to. Oh, yeah, yeah. yes. Okay. Because we're interested in yeah. what it was actually like on the job in those days, what you did, what you didn't do, and how did it all work? Yeah, okay. Well, there was no air-conditioned huts or anything like that. We were sitting in an old shed. When we started, I was, um, I think, nearly 20-year-old, but not quite. May, may have turned 20, but I reckon I was 19. Um, we were told by the company, Gemmel and Hickey was the company, they were a subcontractor to Meco. Um, I'll just go back a touch, Meco was a company owned by E.A. Watts and Ernie Watts, he formed his own company called Meco because he loved mechanical plant and that was what the name Meco was, mechanical plant. So he um, used to come out on the job once a week and walk around. But their facilities and huts and everything were quite good. But Gemmel and Hickey's huts, we, we didn't have even, with not even any lining or no heating, anything, nothing. And of course, you know, it wasn't real good, but you didn't say much because you went down the road. And I'll get to that in a moment. Um, so what, what happened, one of the things that I, I still remember on that job, I was driving a 30-yard scraper and I could, I suppose it sounds like I'm bragging a bit, but I could do my job okay. So that wasn't a problem. I uh, had stopped to go to the toilet because we were doing 10-hour days and if you're sitting on a scraper 10 hours a day, you, you know, you've got to go to the toilet. We'd been arguing um, with the company. There was no such thing as a shop steward because anyone that got a steward's job probably didn't end up sitting on plant. You probably got given a shovel. So um, I was at the toilet and next thing I can hear this car horn toot and I went outside. There's the boss in his valiant ute. They were the go at the time. Uh, and he said to me, Tom, he said, when you work for me, he said, you can go to the toilet twice a day, once before work and once after. And I uh, told a couple of old blokes this at Smoko, one fella, when I say old, he wouldn't be old today, but he would have been uh, 15, 20 years older than me. He was a bloke from down here in the valley, a bloke called Fred Presley, a lovely man. And uh, he said, might be a good idea if we ring the union, Tommy. And so we, we did, because no one wanted to put their hand up. And that was when I first met Malcolm McDonald, to cut a long story short. That would have been 1970. So we'd been on the job probably a few months by then, and Malcolm came out, I reckon, about the time he started with the union in 1970, roughly, I think. So uh, we had a meeting, and we didn't achieve much, but what we did get was a spare operator employed because there was about 20 items of plant running around, and it meant that just that one spare bloke when the gear was going round, if you needed to go to the toilet, well, they could keep their gear going. It kept them happy too. So that was a one memory of that place. Um, probably another one, uh, Jimmy Lappin was the foreman with Mecco, who was over us as well as like our subby, and he shown us the plans, and we were building this thing called the Mulgrove Freeway, which is now M1, as you just said, and he said, if you have a look at this, there's a provision, there's two lanes either way we were building. 
And uh, he said, if you have a look at this, there's a provision here to put a third lane in the middle of the, in the medium strip. And we all laughed. We thought, oh, that'll never happen. It wasn't open, of course, then. All the traffic went through Dandenong, um, Princess Highway. So uh, we all laughed. Oh, that'll never happen. Well, I think you drove down there this morning. I think it's five lanes either way now. Yes. <laughs> and they were absolutely bumper to bumper coming into town. Yes. Because the world has certainly changed from uh, when Dandenong was the outer reaches of Melbourne and uh, now you're thinking Warrigal's probably a suburb. Yeah, that's right. It's changed very much. So after uh, escaping the clutches of uh, Garnell and Hickey, Mm. what happened to you then? Well, I got a job at Cadenia Dam, which... um it's not far from there. Uh, it was with Fleur, or Fleur, Brown and Root, but that was a joint venture, but Fleur were really the main company. And that was, again, like, I probably should go back just a touch. I always wanted, once I got a taste of drive plant, I wanted to do it. I I liked doing my job, even, you know, I mean, sometimes you got annoyed about the conditions, but I, I enjoyed my work, and which makes a day go a lot better. And uh, I knew a few people, and I went up to the dam one night after it knocked off, went up and talked to a few people. It had it only just started, and I got told, yeah, we want you here. So I went up to Cadinia Dam, very early days. I think that would have been... Well, I was working there when the bridge fell down. Yeah. So that's, that's what's... October 70. Yes, so that's where I was working at Cadinia Dam then. We'll probably talk more about Fleur when we get to Carrum, but... They were um, a pretty good company, but we had a couple of Yank bosses and they didn't like unions either. But, you know, we got away with it. But of course, Fleur was owned by Utah. That's right, yes. A multinational mm. with a uh, somewhat, uh, shall we say, questionable uh, attitude to working people and uh, probably a few foreign governments as well. <laughs> yes, yeah. But uh, Cardinia Dam, of course, now is connected up to the uh, diesel plant because that's where the water that comes out of the diesel actually gets deposited after it's been processed. And uh, that just shows you what vast scale of infrastructure has been introduced in these later years. Um, Cardinia Dam was considered to be a big job. Now it's just the reservoir for the diesel. Yeah, that's right. It's not on its own water source. It's um, it's just a holding thing. But it, they did pump water into it, of course, from the Upper Yarra scheme before, for years and years before diesel. But at the time, it doubled Melbourne's water supply in capacity. So you can imagine it. If we didn't have it, what we, what we would do without it? You know, it's um, you know, I don't know. You probably wouldn't be allowed to build it today with some of the environment stuff that goes on. But then I'll probably not get me on that. Well, the. Uh career of Thomas Malone uh, involved what pieces of plant? What did you start out on and where did you go to? Okay. I got taught to drive a face shovel because I was able to do that by someone I knew. While I was still just, um, my first job out of school was tire fitting and I got taught to drive the face shovel just in my time so I could get on a job because there was no training. You had to be able to walk out to the boss and say you've driven some plant to get a job. But my main gear, once I got on a job, was um, bulldozers and scrapers and uh, diggers, what we call diggers, excavators. But that's the main yeah. stuff. You sort of graduate up to a grader, but I was never a final trim grader driver, never ever. No. You just like the bulk. Well, when you're younger, <laughs> you, when you're younger, you can go around on a scraper all day. I couldn't sit on one for an hour now, probably. <laughs> Well, you've got a few jobs uh, before you finally got to Carum, uh, including some time with Leighton Contractors. Yes, 
that was at Fitzroy Falls, which is a Shoalhaven scheme. It's the same sort of scheme as the Snowy Mountains Authority, only in a probably about a third size capacity, but there's a series of dams and canals and they generate power by a vertical shaft, which the water, they, get, they pump it up in at certain times when it's cheaper and then they drop it down the shaft and it spins the turbine. So it's, a, it's just the same as the Snowy in a smaller way. And um, that's where I first met Jack Camborn. Ah, right, the, the one and only Jack Camborn. Yes, well... We should just say, was, uh, as we were growing up, the uh, Federal Secretary of the FEDFA and uh, a bloke who, uh, shall we say, enjoyed his position. <laughs> yes, that's right, yeah. Well, Jack was the State Secretary of the FEDFA in New South Wales at the time. And again, I went there because I, I had a thing about working on big jobs and I, I really, um, I don't know, I just wanted to work around a few of the big jobs and a lot of us did. There was a, a group of operators who, um, you know, the job had finished and you'd see each other on the next one and it was just how it was and you gave each other a leg up. But I can always remember Jack when he was the State Secretary, there was a, a mass meeting at a place called Kangaroo Valley Town Hall or Kangaroo Valley is a... Is a is a little town in the in the middle of Kangaroo Valley, and it was a town hall there, and there was a lot of construction workers there. I'm talking about a series of dams, probably uh, half a dozen different dams. I worked on the one at Fitzroy Falls, and there was Tallawa and others. So Jack, we've got a mass meeting on, and, and I thought, oh, you know, this is it was Blake's drinking grog at the meeting, you know, and I thought this is this is going to get out of control. And when Jack got up and spoke, you could have heard a pin drop, and I uh, I. I know Jack had his people that he didn't get on with, but I was um, I was one of his. He liked you. Yeah, he did, and I liked him. <laughs> so um, I always remembered that, um, and I come, of course, I come across him later on when I started organising. But we'll get to that, I guess. Yeah, of course. Mm. Now, where we met up was your next job, and that was back to Fleur, and uh, Fleur were, as I say, part of the Utah group of companies were a big mining uh, operation as well as uh, involved in construction. But the Southeastern Purification Plant was at the time the second big infrastructure project in Victoria, along with the Westgate Bridge. And it was down at Caron Downs. It's that thing that looks a bit like some kind of uh, space station sitting in the middle of the flats out in Caron. And uh, it was a big job. It was a lot of people. It was tunnelling all the way to Cape Shank for the, uh, the discharge from the purification plant. It had everything going for it. Metal trades, building trades, civil construction. It had the lot. And uh, it was a job that uh, you aspired to get on because it was a well-paid job. And uh, over the journey, I think it achieved some of the uh, breakthroughs that uh, the Westgate Bridge also achieved around the same time, but without the disaster. Yes, it was, it was good money. Well, I don't think we ever... We might have had a little bit of a hiccup over, over wages, but not much at all there because the money was good. I can recall, um, and I'll talk about that a bit later, I think, um, because it's more over the whole time, my whole time in the industry, but I can remember we'd... One of our blokes, one of our workmates got killed during the Christmas break and we had to have a collection because we didn't have, there was no industry funds. So when we say it was good wages, there was none of the industry funds that were, as we know today, were around and sometimes people didn't have enough money to bury themselves. So 
Um, whilst it was good money, there was a lot, there was still a lot of things to be achieved after that. But Carum overall was a terrific job. I can remember um, um, Lewis Construction, who were the major formwork carpenter, I suppose you'd call them, but they were more than that. They, they did all the concrete structures, I think. Uh, they were a subby to Fleur. We used to get still get paid in cash in those days, and Lewis used to pay their blokes at lunchtime on a Thursday. And invariably, I reckon half a dozen times over a couple of years there, there was a bomb scare after lunch because the blokes had their money in their pocket and they wanted to go to the pub. <laughs> well, my memory was that probably uh, became Wednesdays because oh, was midweek races were on Wednesdays. <laughs> and uh, let's just say... I don't think there was a midweek race meeting anywhere in the eastern part of Melbourne and the uh, regional areas adjacent, which was not attended by some uh, workers from the uh, Karam Shit Farm. It all went terribly well till uh, the day the person who rang up from the public phone on site um, said the bomb was in the car park and no one was allowed to leave. Uh, that's right. I and next that. day, a certain uh, Kiwi uh, disappeared off the job. But anyway, <laughs> we won't go down memory lane any further on that little episode. But with your work at Carum, it was the huge holding ponds that had to be built, and we're talking hundreds and hundreds of acres. That's right. And uh, so you were on the, uh, if I remember correctly... The big dose, the D10, weren't you? Yeah, D9 in those days, yep. Ralph. Yeah, well, we ended up getting D10s later on, but on a D9 and a, and a, and a 641 scraper, which were the biggest scrapers around in those days. Fleur had the best gear. Yeah. They really did. They had some good gear. And they were all good operators, so we all took a pride in what we were doing. And that, that was the other thing. You know, you'd actually, as I said, you enjoyed your work. You wanted a good day's pay, but you enjoyed your work. But that was a massive job. It started from Thompson Road and Worsley Road and went right back to the Patterson River. It's um, probably be a couple of thousand acres, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah probably ma- right. Amazing. Yeah. And the amount of, um, shall we say, product that could be uh, distributed across <laughs> those ponds was necessary because up till that point it was only the Western Treatment Plant out at Werribee which was uh, taking all the sewerage from metropolitan Melbourne. But... Uh, it was a project uh, which was probably, shall we say, one of the most vital parts of the infrastructure that was built right through that period from the uh, 1960s. That's right. It had to be built. I mean, if it hadn't been built, we wouldn't have. There was nowhere for the sewage left to go. Werribee was, was yep. that capacity. And the Whitlam Labor government at the time uh, actually had a policy of introducing sewage. Uh, across all of the suburbs in the metropolitan areas and uh, it was just as well because the septic tank approach didn't uh, go that well, did it? No, no, well, it's interesting you talk about Gough Whitlam, um, probably one of the best policies in my lifetime. I can still remember the slogan up, it's time, and that was up as you walked out of the crib out, uh, on the walkway. So there were some good bosses there because they let us leave it there, so that says something about they're not all, not all bosses are bastards, I suppose. <laughs> Well, there was a bloke there called Marshall. Yes. <laughs> he was the superintendent, mm. and uh, I remember him well because he sacked me twice. Mm. Um, first time, maybe I'd push me luck a bit. Second time, it was a uh, absolute mistaken identity. Yeah. And I got reinstated. But uh, never mind. 
With uh, Karen, we uh, got severance pay there after a, uh, a bit of a blue because the Builders Labourers Federation, which I was a member of, got locked out for uh, six weeks and the job basically ground to a halt. Without the labourers, uh, nothing much got done and uh, unfortunately um, we all had to find whatever work we could find and I ended up going to work for the Country Roads Board. Yeah. An experience never to be repeated, I can tell you. <laughs> but uh, what happened with you in the, the time of the, the lockout? Well, I suppose being a dirt digger, we I got used to being retrenched. We, um, a lot of the time, especially Carum, because it was so low, I actually had a couple of starts at Carum because uh, they would put us off for the winter sometimes. So we just couldn't, you couldn't turn a wheel out there, it was that low. And when they started the plant, all the pumping stations and everything are below sea level at Karen, and they're down very deep. So I did have to go to other places, and that's why I went to New South Wales a couple of times. And by this stage, you were married and with kids? Yes. Um, my oldest son, Troy, who um, turns 50 this year, <laughs> he was born when I was born at Karen. And uh, it took us a while to uh, recognise that we'd actually both been there together till I had a dream. Yeah, you, you remembered it. I remembered <laughs> a young bloke with blonde hair, big sideburns and a yellow Miller-checked shirt. And you said to me, I never had a yellow Miller-checked shirt. And the lovely Ellen said, yes, it was stolen off our clothesline in Chelsea. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and then it all fell into place. But after Karen, because we could probably tell some stories about Karen, which were... Pretty unique, but maybe for another time. Yep. So after Karen, where'd you go? A Moomba Sydney pipeline, which was a massive job. It was from Moomba in South Australia to was natural gas to Sydney. It was 800 kilometres of pipeline. And um, I only got there because of Fleur, even though, you know, I'd been active member of the union on these jobs. As I said, I could do my job so I could always get a job. And they, Fleur sent some gear on hire to Australian Pipeline Construction on the Moomba to Sydney Pipeline. And the bloke said, well, well, he told Australian Pipeline Construction that you can hire their gear, but we want to send our operators with it. Because it was pretty much a closed shop to get on those pipelines. There was, they were a different brewery. Went hire. Yeah, yeah. So I, I went to Australian Pipeline Construction up in New South Wales again, which was, um, you know, it was an eye-opener because they were a different breed of people altogether, um, they didn't accept outsiders. They called themselves pipeliners and talking about blacks wearing check shirts. Uh, they all had um, red wing boots and one trouser leg tucked in. That, that was their look. I think they slept that way. You know? <laughs> yeah, well, there was a few different companies on there. I think Eglo was on the, uh, the job as well because there was uh, work at the Moomba end where they had to actually set up the, uh, the processing uh, and collection point. So yeah. there's a lot of people worked on Moomba. Oh, yeah. Well, I was in New South Wales. I wasn't at that end at all. Yeah. Uh, but that's right. There was a lot of companies over that side where the gas was produced. Yeah. yeah. So just dividing your working life up into different bits, hmm. my uh, issue is always how the work was done and what was good and what was bad about it. So we're talking now late 60s, early 70s. The world is changing a bit. There's been a Labor government for the first time since the Second World War. There's all sorts of uh, new conditions being introduced. The four weeks annual leave, leave loading. There are all sorts of improvements going on and unions were pushing. 
beaten the uh, penal uh, clauses in uh, 69 with the uh, industrial campaign about getting Clary O'Shea from the Tramways Union released. There was a lot happening. How did you see the conditions and that that you uh, experienced as a plant operator through that period? Probably out where we were, we sort of ran our own race a bit. It wasn't, it wasn't so much like Melbourne because um, I, I didn't work in town much. I ended up doing it years later. But at the, I mean, I was, I was fully aware of the Clary O'Shea thing, of course. We did knock off the day that Gough Whittlem got sacked. I mean, we were involved, but not involved to the extent of people um, like yourself who worked in town in the industry. Yeah. But conditions on the job and how you were treated, I mean, you mentioned the fact that it was normal for plant operators to be stood down for big, big chunks of time over winter. On some of the jobs, and it was just accepted yeah. because the gear got parked up. They weren't sacking yet, mm-hmm. although... I mean, there was always people around who made sure they were on the right bits of gear when it come to that time of the year. <laughs> I was never one of those because um, I used to have me bits of hat. I always had me say, so I usually went, but I always got back. But the blokes stuck together, so that was the important thing. But, I, yeah, I think that's answered them. In terms of uh, living away from home, were you living away from home? I would have thought on the uh, Moomba pipeline. Yeah, it was a camp job, Um but then I bought a caravan because um, young family. Al was pregnant with our second son at the time, so I bought a caravan, and a lot of people up there bought caravans. So you had the option of living in the camp or buying your own caravan, and they gave you an allowance, which was in the agreement. The agreements were good agreements. They were. And I'd have to say the pipeline welders were um, probably responsible for the money. Yeah. Certainly they were the ones that had the clout on, on that job. There's no doubt about that. But we had a, a big caravan and we lived in a caravan with two kids after Matt was born, our second son. So that's why my wife never wanted to holiday in caravans after that. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> well, so I should say we worked 12 hours a day, four weeks straight, and then we had a week off. And, now, you know, I can't even remember whether we got paid for the week off, but we were making that much money. I, I was happy. I really don't know whether we did or not. I can't remember. It was, it, it was 1975, yeah. 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 Now, in terms of the machinery that you were using, obviously Fleur had good gear, but it wasn't all good gear, was it, in your working life? A lot of it was probably not very well maintained. Am I right, or it was pretty mixed bag? Oh, yes, yeah. I remember driving a, a tornipole that was converted into a water cart, which they used to in those days at Cardinia Dam. And it was still a stick shift. and It wasn't power shift. Or you had to change gears like the old manual. And Cardinia Dam was a, was a very steep job. But, you know, I probably thought I was pretty good and I, I got away with it. But there's a lot of blokes who wouldn't drive that on the hills because if you've missed a gear, you were in strife. They were, that's right. Some of the gear wasn't up to scratch, yes. And what was the sort of... Uh health and safety standards like in those days. I mean, blokes work together on jobs and they look after each other. But I would have thought that nevertheless there's a lot of things that can go awry with uh, any kind of construction work. And So what was the, the dirt diggers like? Oh, there wasn't any emphasis at all. There was never a safety meeting to my memory. In those days, I can't recall ever ever having a meeting about it. If you raised something with safety, you just raised it, But um, and some people never did. But um, I always did if I thought something was wrong. 
but we didn't have the, the things that um, people have fought for today. So let's move on now to the late 70s, early 80s. At this point, I think you came back to Victoria and back to the Valley. Yeah, I, I did a job at Sugarloaf Dam first. I was going to go to Dartmouth, but my name preceded me from union activities and uh, I couldn't get a job at Dartmouth, so I went down to Sugarloaf and got a job there and I was there for a couple of years. And then I moved to, uh, I worked for um, a couple of companies, but Project Development Corporation at Sugarloaf on a water treatment plant. I worked with a couple of blokes that um, have been around Tom Fitzgerald, you'll know, in the industry. Yes. I worked the with one him. and only? Yeah, I worked with Tom there. They built the water treatment plant at Sugarloaf. Uh, Keith Luke, a very good friend of mine, a crane driver, he was there, yes. and then, oh, a lot of others too now, but they were two that come to mind. Um, but Sugarloaf was a good job, but it was a different job for me. It wasn't um, six days a week like I'd been used to. And so living at Yarra Glen, I was able to start going to the footy. But I must say, in those days, North Melbourne used to win a game. <laughs> <laughs> yes, this is a North Melbourne tragics interview for sure. But... Every uh, team has its ups and has its downs, and the industry during this period uh, was affected, certainly in the uh, building sector and probably the metal trade sector too. It was quite affected by the uh, various uh, recessions that took place in the early, uh, sorry, mid 70s and early 80s. But the thing that kept the industry ticking over is uh, probably infrastructure and Sugarloaf, Harem Downs, all those jobs are infrastructure-type jobs and uh, governments of both persuasions were very, very uh, happy to uh, make it look like they were doing something and please their friends in uh, industry by undertaking infrastructure work. And the big one for you, I would have thought, was Loyer. Yes, that's right. After Sugarloaf, I, went to, I moved back to Trobe Valley. Uh, I was born in Gippsland. My grandfather was a coal miner in Gippsland and have a lot of history, our family in Gippsland. And I was very pleased to come back to Gippsland, actually. So was your grandfather down at Wonthaggy on the Black Coal? He was, yeah. yeah. So we um, moved to Terrelgan and I got a job with Dillingham Constructors crane driving. I'd learned a bit of crane driving off a couple of blokes taught because I'd been mainly a plant operator and I also ran the batch plant at Sugarloaf. They had their own batch plant on the on the job at um, PDC. But then I went down to um, Loyang. I was driving, a, just started off on a 20-ton crane because I hadn't done a lot of crane driving. And then I progressed on to, over that pretty quick because I'd been driving mobile mechanical plant for years, so it was, wasn't hard to pick it up. And that was with Dillingham. But I was the shop steward with Dillingham's as well, the FEDFA shop steward. Bedford always had the cranes in the valley and um, I probably was a little bit, sometimes probably, better, you know, might have said a bit more than I should have for my own good, so I got retrenched from Dillingham's before the job was finished. But it was also, I should say, at the time, um, the BLs, and uh, I support them in everything they've ever done, by the way, I've got to say that, they had a blue going for, at the batch plant themselves to try and get an allowance. And um, the SEC, in their wisdom, decided to cut it down to... Um, put a lot of people off and I was one of them that was how they how they did it they said that well because we can't get enough concrete we're going to have to put scale the job down so and they also the master builders association at the time put out a list on don't employ any of these blokes that are trying to starve us out of course especially you know anyone that was involved in the blue 
So there was a list went to other companies, to, not to employ you, but I, went, I jumped in the car the night I was put off and drove up the road to Thies. And, of course, having been a plant operator for a long time, um, I said to him, Boker, you got a job? He said, I'll give you a job, but I'm not supposed to. You're on the list. And I said, oh, well, are you going to give me a job? He said, yeah, I will, but don't tell anyone. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I worked for Thies at Loyang as well then. Yeah. And then that was um, after that, the next phase, I started organising. And the uh, SEC and the master builders' reps, they had reps that, who used to go to those projects, would have gone, we got rid of him yesterday. How come he's back today? Yeah. I, they noticed you, did they? Oh, well, it wasn't bad because the, the bloke that was running the job, I'd worked with him over those years that we've just talked about. So he sort of made sure I was driving the plant when they come around. But, yeah, they did. They, they had a look. Yeah, it was pretty bad, really. Like the MTIA and the MBAV were, they were like coppers out there. They were on, on a job like Lo Yang. It was, you know, we're talking um, probably over a thousand workers. Yeah. But then, did you want to talk about the organising then from there? Because oh, that's well, where. Let's just got to get a little mm. bit more out of you in terms of the valley. Okay. Because as you quite rightly say, you're a valley person. Yeah. And uh, your grandfather would have worked at the Wonthaggy State Coal Mine and uh, you would have been regaled with stories of the uh, the blues and disputes and the solidarity of uh, the Wonthaggy miners over a, a long period of time because they really copped it. Mm-hmm. Did that go out into the valley as a whole? Was that part of the culture of the valley or did the valley develop its own culture? Well, I think the valley had its own we probably weren't called the Valley Vultures for nothing. <laughs> but look, there's a lot uh, of... A very well-known <laughs> reference to a uh, term of derision there. <laughs> but, um, you know, um, the Valley had its own culture, yes, definitely. I can um, I can still remember uh, Jimmy O'Neill was an organiser of the metal workers and he used to say the best thing about the Valley is when I'm driving up the hill out of Morwell looking at it in the rear vision mirror. But uh, no, it was there were, there were a lot of good people in the valley. Yep. Yeah, and so the work that went on in the valley was very much uh, orientated towards the power generation industry, the SECV, and so on. Yes. Would you like to reflect on what was good about the valley culture and what was maybe not so good? Because it all suddenly ended with the sale of the SEC so many years later in the nineteen nineties when the uh, Kennett government got in and basically turned the valley upside down. But at the time of Loyang and that, it was like it was something seriously big and it was important. Industrially, it was important in terms of the infrastructure of Victoria. Yes, it was. We had plenty of work, and as you say, but they were building stuff that was needed, in my opinion. Before Yalorn W4 came online, there was brownouts and people were you know, on rations at that stage and that would have been in the late... 70s, so the yeah, power just, was moved. Just describe a brownout. Well, there wasn't I don't think, pe- I don't think people mm. listening to this show are necessarily going to understand uh, how things actually worked. Well, there wasn't, just wasn't enough power being generated. I know now we've, we're going a different way, and I can talk about that later. I can give you my opinion on that too if you want to, but there just wasn't enough power being generated, um, and until W4 came online, it was really needed, and... Um, there was just places, they used to say, well, the, these suburbs in Melbourne, you've got no power for a couple of hours, and then another suburb would be dropped off. Not only in Melbourne, but I can recall it happening in Melbourne more so, because there's a lot of people in Melbourne didn't even know where the power came from. 
And when I went back to the valley, I say, because I came from Gippsland, they were going to build 21 power stations. Well, they built two. But I also worked on pulling one down while I was with the... Oh, well, I'll get to the SEC next, I guess. But in terms of the culture of the valley, it was a good community. It was a difficult community to survive in. What, what do you reckon? Good for me. I got on well with... Because, I, I mean, I worked with the blokes and you, you mixed with the people. Good sporting clubs. It was... Um, the pollies were good because they were, they were, they were Labor pollies and, and we, it was a pretty good area to live um, politically too because from right back then I was a member of the Labor Party, which, you know, I was um, pleased to be part of and there was a lot of, um, a lot of good working class people there, but um, I mean, that's changed a bit over time. And what about the offshore, the oil and gas industry and how that plugged into the, the valley? Because I would have thought there were people who were able to go to jobs, part of shutdowns and uh, various other maintenance tasks on top of construction. So there was a variety of work, not just a lot of work. Oh, a terrible lot of work offshore. ESO, which is run by Exxon America, Exxon, whatever it's called, it was SOBHP here in this country. They, um, they built the offshore area. Um, and I didn't work in that industry much. I did do some, a, a small amount of time, which I can get to later because it's after I'd done my first stint organised and I'd probably got to come to that. But um, ESSO built the gas plants. They built four, yeah, four now, but they built three. One of them that I was fully aware of, but I only worked at Longford um, for seven months myself on a job. But um, massive work associated with the oil industry. And a lot of people, my memory, having worked in the, the Altona complex and so on, a lot of people from Gippsland, uh, South Gippsland, Sale, you name it, would come up and work in town on shutdowns and so on, or at Barry's Beach. Uh, I mean, a lot of people wouldn't even know what Barry's Beach is, but it, Barry's Beach was a uh, facility which was used for supplying uh, offshore rigs, but also for the uh, construction and, uh, shall we say, uh, transport of those uh, rigs out into Bass Strait. Yes, Barry Beach, you're right, spot on. It uh, was a marine terminal, but it also was a a fenced-off area for building the offshore platforms. Eglo were building the ones in in the 80s, Uh, West Kingfish, Cobia, Fortescue, Flounder. They were all... uh, what you'd call the second generation platforms. So it was the first ones out there before I was involved. Um, and then Transfield built a couple, um, Brim and Whiting. So they were all built there and they were massive jobs building those platforms. So it was um, 400 blokes working on there, building those one platform at a time. It was crane lifts where you'd have, um, you'd line up five or six 200 tonne cranes to do what they called a roll-up. And it was a multi-lift with, with all those cranes hooked up in one lift. So... Really, the uh, amount of work was sensational. Yeah. So just try to do a comparison between what the valley was like then and what it's like now. In proportion, if the early 80s was 100%, where do you reckon uh, the amount of work is now? Oh. Um, I'm putting you on the spot. Yeah, no, you're right. It's okay. It's a fraction, isn't it? There's no, there's no work now. I mean, the privatisation that Kenneth did starter was the start of the rot and some people thought it was okay at the time because they got a, they got what they called a 
when he privatised the SEC and some other, you know, state instrumentalities. Yeah, like the fuel. Border Works, I think, yeah. yeah. Port um, Melbourne, you name it. Yes. Um, a lot of people thought this is all right because they got a thing called a VDP, a voluntary departure package, but there was nothing voluntary about it because you didn't have an option. There was no job going to be there for you. A lot of these blokes thought, well, this is all right, I'll get a heap of money on a Friday night and I'll start with a contractor following Monday because someone had to do the work, but now those jobs have been cut to the bone. There's, there's no, none of those jobs are left, really. They've, they've sharpened the pencil, sharpened the pencil, and, of course, they're gradually going to shut them down now. Now, through the 80s, there was a number of state Labor governments, the Kane government, the Kerner government. That really was just a bit of a prelude to what Kenneth did because the, uh, the change that was starting to take place was already taken place by the mid-80s, I would have thought. The cutbacks in expenditure on new infrastructure, the SEC's almost pathological desire to survive, but all that disappeared, of course, when Kenneth got in. Yes, yeah. Because, as you said, there was going to be 21 power stations, but there were only two. Even the the things like the apprenticeships and all the rest of it were progressively getting cut back through that period. You've just jogged my memory on on that one there. Firstly, on the jobs, there was... We were still building Luoyang B through the 80s, Uh, and I I need to get to that. I'll probably talk about that in a minute, but as far as the intake of apprentices, well, you know, the intake of apprentices, I think from memory it was probably about 1,000 to 1,500 a year in the SEC. Now there's no kids, very, very few people being trained where I live. There might be a few TAFE courses, but the contractors, because they're just there to make money, they you might get them to employ one or two apprentices. And, and the training was was second to none with the training that the SCCV did. So a kid growing up in the Latrobe Valley could basically get an apprenticeship? Absolutely. Uh, get a job mm. and spend the rest of their lives in the valley. At least that was the, uh, the thought. But we, we thought that it would happen. Matt, my younger son, Matt, was a fitter and turner. He did his time there. I'd, we just thought he'll always work there, but um, later on he had to leave the valley and go to Melbourne for work. Oh, and he worked um, offshore with the oil industry, but that's all dried up too now, of course. So the world came to a uh, crashing halt in the valley in the early 90s, but where were you in the 80s? Because I don't think you were sitting in the uh, saddle of a uh, D10. No, no, I was not. I um, I was actually driving a dozer when um, I was approached... Um, a bloke called um, Eric Person, who was the organiser, had come down. Uh, we had one organiser, uh, I'm talking about the FEDFA, uh, to try and do the valley, trying to do everything with a bloke called Mick Clark. Yes. And um, in fairness to Mick, it was just too much on. He, he had the day, what we call the day labour. He was looking after all the operations people, which, you know, it was phenomenal the amount of people that he was looking after. And then he also had to try and pick up the construction, which was booming. And... Um, I'd been going to stewards' meetings for a while, of course, as a steward, both at Dillingham and at Thies. And Eric said to me, um, I'm probably cutting a long story short here because it took a bit of time for this to happen, but he, he was coming down and he said, I can't do this and do my normal patch where I work in town. And he said, um, would you be interested in being booked off the job for uh, three months? 
And I said, um, I'll go home and talk to Al and we'll have a think about it. And I rang him back the next day and I said, yeah, we'll have a go. And he said, come down to Melbourne next week. So I went down. Stan Williams was the secretary at the time, but he was on leave. I don't think he would have given me a job because he didn't want to employ anyone else. But um, there was uh, Malcolm was then acting secretary and Eric Person, and I met with the other officials and they said, well, we'll book you off for three months. And that was in uh, 1980 and I stayed for all of the... end up being elected official and staying for the, for the end of the 80s. Mm. Yeah. And what were your areas of responsibility? Okay. Well, I I can Just for the tape, he I, has brought the, his paperwork with him because oh, yeah. it's a lot of stuff that has to be remembered, doesn't it? Yeah, well, I, I never put it all down, but I just thought of a few things uh, this morning. Um, firstly, I have to say that um, because I'd been going to the stewards' meetings um, regularly, you know, from the time I'd gone back to the Valley for uh, about two years, I had... A couple of very good mentors, and that was Jim Ryan and Harry Carslake. Jim was a metal workers organiser and Harry Carslake was the BLF organiser. And when I, of course, worked for Drover Crane for Dillinghams, the BLs were our dogmen. And I got on very well with Harry, and, of course, Jim was a personal friend. So they were a great help when I first went organising because I was thrown off the deep end. You think um, being a shop steward, you know it all, but when they first... Um, send you out on the job as an organiser and um, yeah, it's a different world. <laughs> it's called jumping in the deep end and having to swim. Yeah. No one's going to give you a lesson. That's right. So I was very grateful and I always will be for those two blokes I just mentioned. Um, unfortunately, they're both long gone now. Um, I can remember in the early, probably 1981, Jim Ryan said... Um, I'm getting a visit this morning from a couple of people from the SECV. Your Lawn W hadn't quite come online at the time. Your Lawn W4, they built four boilers there, and that was what I talked about before. And the unions, we, we could not get an agreement with the company at the time. The agreement was up for renewal, even though the job hadn't finished. And we were blue and bad with um, a company called ICAL who were building the boilers, International Combustion Australia Limited. And he said, I'm getting a visit this morning from a couple of people from the SECV, and that was George Bates was the, was the project. He was, I'll think of his title in a minute, but he's in charge of the construction of the SECV in the whole of Victoria. He was general manager of design and construction, and, and he brought his IR bloke. And cut a long story short, we sat down, with Jim, just Jim and I in the room, because it was a meeting that was, wasn't, hadn't been convened ahead of time. Even though there was two other unions that used to do the metal trades agreement, that was the iron workers and the ETU. Um, but he, um, George himself, just wanted to talk to the metals. But of course, because um, the metals and Bedford shared a building in Morwell, which uh, and in Melbourne. Yeah, well, they did. Yeah, yeah. Well, there was Victoria at that, Parade. At that stage, we were talking about uh, amalgamating. Yes, but um, that never happened. And so we sat down with George and. I found him a bloke, hard, very, very hard man, but he was a man of his word. And, of course, we were too. We, we had to do our job and we, he did his. But what came out of that over time was um, that we did an agreement with the SECV and he then gave that to his contractors as tender advice. So rather than at the time we were blowing with contractors about an agreement, uh, the client did the agreement with the unions 
and simply said to the contractor, the tender, Tom, this is what you tender on, and this is what you will work to, which at least everyone was on the same playing field. I suppose it was another form of, of um, pattern bargaining, <laughs> but it was different, of course, because it was imposed by the client. And guess what? In recent times, uh, after probably the best part of 25 years of trying to every which way to get out of that sort of process, we're now heading back towards it. Yeah, really. Because even on some of the big infrastructure jobs going at the moment, there's a recognition that the ability of these multinational contractors who have basically kept a closed shop uh, for a very long time have been ripping the absolute money out of the taxpayers by basically doing whatever they like and saying what they like and... uh, having industrial blues and saying, well, the client can look after them. And the client's going, no, well, we let you do what you want to do on wages and conditions uh, and we don't want to take responsibility. But guess what? At the end of it, taxpayers still paying out. Yes. So going back to the future, not a bad thing. So yeah. we might just at that point uh, just remind people uh, who they're listening to. Of the industry on Community Radio 3CR. So you're now an organiser. You're back in the home base in the valley. And what was your day-to-day experiences? You got up in the morning. Where do you think you're going to go that day or most days? Well, it was a very diverse job working for the FEDFA because um, you know we were a union that had people in lots and lots of industries. But of course, there was, as I said, there was a major construction going on. Um, there was Hazelwood Reconstruction, which was um, uh, Babcock and Wilcock who'd built the original Bab- uh, boilers at Hazelwood. They were doing a reconstruction job there and there would have been two or 300 blokes on that job, apart from um, probably over a 1,000 at Loyang, as I said. So there was a couple hundred plant operators and 100 crane drivers every day working at Loyang. So uh, probably two days out of the three, I would just go to Loyang for a while when I started because that's how big it was. Those river diversions happen- happening, construction pipelines, overburden removal, conveyor construction. It was just, there was work everywhere. And then the crane hire, Pat Preston and I, well, Pat looked after the crane hire in Melbourne in those days, followed up by Murray Hill. But um, in those days, it was Pat and I did a, had a fair bit to do with it because... Um, we had um, 60 permanent hire cranes drivers, or cranes, working out of Morwell. And then there was the SO oil industry, oil and gas. They were building gas plant three at the time with a company called Citra. Jim Ryan and I again did an agreement with Citra uh, and the MTIA. At the same time, Citra were doing a, the elevated road in uh, Melbourne. Yes, at just a little bit later. Just yes. a, and we had, we had a big blue with them there. Um, I can remember... Can I talk about that? Go for it. Yeah, I uh, I don't know how I ended up there, but Patty from well, it was Pat Preston. Pat rang and said, "Come down, we have got a problem there." And I remember walking around the corner, and the late John Cummins was standing there with a fire drum, uh, and I said, "What's going on?" He said, "Hang around, you'll see." And um, I thought this is good, and I did. And anyway, um, he was trying to impress upon Citra that it was his work rather than the AWS, and we agreed with him, of course, and. Uh, it was um, pretty fiery there for a while. Yeah, it was a, it was a big job right in the middle of uh, the city. 
from the South Bank. And uh, for people who don't remember it, it was an elevated road all in uh, what we say precast sections, a bit like the Westgate Bridge. Yeah, yes. That's where it's not far from um, Docklands now, is it? That's right. And of course, that was apart from like that's the oil and gas. We we had the offshore. When I say we, Fedfor had the offshore crane drivers. They were exclusively Fedfor crane drivers, even though we weren't parties to the engineering oil companies award. It went back to the construction, and we just kept them. And um, they were very good blokes. So I liked those fellows. They were good to look after because they were good unionists. So each platform had two crane drivers on it. Sometimes more with ship work. And we had quite a few permanent crane drivers there. Unfortunately, when I uh, gave the job away, those jobs were given away. And now um, they have people out there that do anything, which is not good for safety either, of course. I did talk about Barry Beach earlier. That was a that was a massive job. I can remember taking going over there with John Halfpenny. Jim Ryan had asked me to take him over because Jim was off sick. And John had come down to Morwell and I drove him over there and... They were big days. I mean, a lot of those blokes were... Um, well, there was a bit of funny money going on with uh, with welders. So you can imagine some of the stuff going on. Because the union didn't support that. The unions believed that we needed to get an decent agreement rather than people getting a, another envelope at the end of the day. You know? Yeah, no pink eyes. Yeah. Um, just so, just in case people don't understand, John Halfpenny was? Oh, he was just, at the time the State Secretary of the Metalworkers Union. One of the biggest unions in the state and one of the most influential. Yeah, uh, that's right. It's They were a good union then, and I'll say then. <laughs> I'll leave it at that. Uh, he was a very good operator, and uh, I suppose it probably should talk about Laurie Carmichael too. Um, I did talk about Jack Camborn earlier, and uh, I, I, not everyone shares my views, but I thought Jack was a tremendous organiser. And I um, can always remember going to, when I was a steward and then later as an official, going to MTFU meetings, Metal Trades Federation of Unions, because we were tied in those days to uh, Engine Drivers Medal Award and Engine Drivers General. And um, I can remember going to meetings and Laurie Carmichael would get up and speak. And after you listen to him, you, when you walked outside, you were ready to walk through a brick wall. And he, was, um, he was very, very good. And it was would have been in um, about eighty two. I would have thought that we won, the, and I was I started organising in eighty uh, that we uh, won the nineteen day working month. I think it was eighty two, and uh, I think at the time it was a fourteen dollar pay rise too, which in those days was a significant pay rise. And to uh, put it in context, it was the first reduction in working hours since. Uh, the war years back in the 1940s, and uh, everybody progressively got a 38-hour week, down from 40 hours to 38, and take it as a day off a month. Uh, not everyone did that. Some people took a short week. Some people took short shorter hours each day, depending on how much power the boss had. But in construction, in many other areas, engineering and so on, it was a 19-day month, and... Uh, Probably one of the biggest improvements uh, people have had because if you're working sad days, at least you've got two days off at a weekend once a month. That's right. It was it was a big breakthrough, a big breakthrough. And um, you know, not all unions were keen on hanging in there for the during the during the tough times either. 
We used to, as I said, we were part of the Metal Trades Federation of Unions at the time, and we used to knock off at 10 o'clock on a Friday morning um, in the campaign so that we were working a true 35-hour week, which, you know, we had a few nervous Nellies who wanted to, wanted, didn't want to knock off, but we had to... And that was, that was when the likes of Laurie Carmichael addressing meetings, um, he, he, he kept everyone in the blue and uh, we won it, but it wasn't easy. It, was, it took a while to... Um, I think that campaign probably went for 12 months or so. Yes. Yeah. Uh, also, there was the Cold World job, I should mention. Uh, but then, you know, we talk about what you did um, organising. Apart from construction, uh, there was APM Merivale. We, that was a, that's still going to be still the biggest um, industry in the valley, apart from the SEC, or well, the, what's left of the SECV. We had, um, there was coal-fired boilers there and we had the boiler attendants and the turbine drivers. So they were our permanent workforce there and they were a very um, good bunch of blokes. They, in fact, um, won superannuation for the pulp and paper industry at that mill. And um, and people think you had all these things and um, you didn't. But we also uh, had a lot of construction going on at at Maryvale. And then APM Forests. That was a separate company owned by APM. They owned all their own forests. And um, we had another 60 or 70 plant operators building roads and stuff around the forest where they, they have uh, timber plantations, not only pine but hardwood as well for their mill. That's all been sold. It all belongs to, uh, I think it's Hancock now, probably an American company or something. And then, of course, I mean, when I started as an organiser, I said you could throw off the deep end. Uh, being the engine drivers, we had boiler attendants in in um, every butter factory in Gippsland, every hospital in those days. And of course, um, I was told you got to go around the boiler attendants. I when I first went into a boiler house, I you know didn't know what to say, but I learnt, and we got them some good pay rises. And there was one company, Ness Nessels, who were at. Um, Maffer and Tongala, because once I started doing Gippsland, we had a lot of factories in Gippsland, the other blokes had start, started ringing me up because I'd put a bit in the dynamo uh, about a few things we'd achieved, and the blokes started ringing me up up in the northeast at Tongala and other other towns in the northeast, and so I started doing a lot of it. Rushworth and um, all those sort of places? All of those, every, everywhere where there was a butter factory, we had members. You know, um, well, that's what we had. They were they were attended boilers, so I learnt, you know, what a, what a boiler house was. Um, wasn't hard to find when you're into a butter factory. And um, one thing they did have was a bit of muscle, because the uh, turbine, uh, sorry, the, the boiler gets turned off. Well, there ain't no production. Yeah, they did, but it, sometimes you're in such a strong position, um, it was hard. You had to be really, um, you know, we had we. We told the boss many times we were, we were going to turn the steam off, but it was a pretty hard thing to do because they were, you know, the Melbourne Sun would have had them tipping milk down the drain. And but we, I mean, Maryvale, we did shut Maryvale down. We we really did, and that was uh, the Pulp and Paper Workers Union, which became part of the CFMEU later on. They never had a blue in their life. They just had a me too. We called it a me too clause. They whatever we achieved or the medals achieved, they they said me too. And we uh, usually me two, three, four, and five, but yeah, we won't go there. That's right. And um, 
you know, it was it was a powerful position, but sometimes gee, you had to. Well, if you used it, it was very serious stuff, you know. Uh, I can remember people wouldn't talk to me at the local footy game when we shut Maryvale down. And it was a lot of those puff wolfers that we called them, Pulp and Paper Workers Union. They're still called puff wolfers to this day to me. Uh, they were going crooking me for shutting the joint down. We were just having the blue to get a to get a decent wage rise. And you got a wage rise? Yeah, we had a win. Yeah. And in those days, what sort of increases were you achieving? Oh, look, money was. I'm not sure, but it would have. It wasn't a fortune we were asking. After, but it would have been, you know, probably three or four percent, something like that. Yeah. yeah. Before I started at Maryvale, we had the train there too. That they had their own train. We had the train driver, and he was a good old bloke. He would um, slow the train down now and then when we needed to put a bit of pressure on him. Um, but the, he told a story long before my time that when they had the blue to win super. <laughs> There was a fellow called Jim McHugh, who was the industrial relations officer for APM Maryvale, and he was going down the valley. To, uh, he said to his boss, he, he told this story, it was before I was organised, he said, uh, FEDFA blacks are on strike at the mill. And his boss said to him, what do, what do they want? He said, they want super. And he said, um, can I give it to them? They, he said, his boss said, no. So he went down the valley, he had a meeting with the blacks, and he gave them super. Went back to Melbourne the next morning. He said to his boss, "They're back at work." He said, "What'd you give me?" So I give him super. <laughs> but that was the start of superannuation in the pulp and paper industry. Yeah. It was just from a blue that only lasted a day, you know. Yeah. Yeah. In your experience, most blues went on a lot longer than that. Oh yeah. Loyang, some of the blues there went. Well, did they ever stop? Well. I'd go back to Yulon W first, as I said, yeah. we, until when the SEC came and said, look, we'll do an agreement with you. And they said it to us, to Jim Ryan mainly, not me. I was just happened to be there. He was the metal workers and they were the union at the time. Even though, I mean, we all had a position, but the iron workers had a lot of numbers, but, you know, they, they weren't very well organised at the time. Um, so, sorry, I lost my train of thought. That's there. right, we were at Loy Yang W. The blues that took like, place were... Yeah. Yeah. Serious blues. I mean, yeah. People lost money. It wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't like the, the train driver slowing down the uh, production process by not delivering the wood. But people went out. People had overtime bans on. People had all sorts of industrial action going on, and it was normal. Oh, as I said, when I first when I first started in on in eighty as an organizer, um, when I was booked off for that three months, Elon W four hadn't come online, and I don't think that. We worked a full week there. It was just, uh, and it was because of um, contractors putting their head in the sand. They didn't want to reach an agreement. They were just taking us on. They'd come from interstate, and of course, the blue that the BLs had at Loyang, where they was known as the lockout, they weren't actually on strike. They were just uh, weren't working overtime, and um, people got sacked because of it. I was one of them, as I said earlier, um, and that went on forever. And of course, Harry was running that, Harry Carslake, uh, and I totally supported what he was doing. Um, and in the end, you know, a bloke that you know a lot about, Norm Gallagher, they um, they end up winning a payment for when they were locked out. They were paid for all the time they weren't working. So that was a big win for the unions, but there was a lot of uh, heartache before they got to that, yeah. or a lot of, not heartache, but a lot of a lot of people were out of work because of it for all. And people... In today's industry, 
certainly get the benefit of all of that, but maybe they don't quite appreciate just what you have to go through. And another thing I'll put to you, Tom, is that being an organiser is not just a case of get up, go down, flap your lips and uh, say a few things. You're going to wake up in the morning with an attitude that you're going out to have a blow. Yeah. You you are in combat mode and that takes a, a strain on everybody, including the families. That's right. That's and, right. And members, quite rightly, say we pay our money and that's what we expect. How did you cope with what was, I would have thought, in the 1980s in the Latrobe Valley, a pretty full-on lifestyle? Um. It was hard at times. There was no mobile phone, so you went back to the office later in the day after you being out all over jobs everywhere. Um, and you'd have all your messages, but then a lot of people had your phone number at home. My phone, I, I left my phone number in the book. So you would get phone calls at all hours of night, especially some blokes after they'd had a couple of drinks. You know, they'd, they'd give you a bell. Um, so, so, still still so a was, problem. Eh? Still a problem. Yeah, so it was difficult. Um yeah, well, I did have a rule with um, some people. I'd say, look, you can ring me up till 7 o'clock or something like that, but you know, try not to do it later. And most of them were pretty good like that. Most of them were pretty good, especially when you didn't have a mobile phone. I, I mean, you had to accept that you'd get some phone, get some phone calls at night time. But um, most people that live in the valley understood unions. Um, they knew what we'd, what we'd achieved. Um, yeah. And in the valley, I would have thought you didn't get lost in the uh, the big picture. You were local. They saw you at the football ground. They saw you at the shopping uh, centre. They saw you at the petrol station. They saw you all the time. That's right. Did that build uh, camaraderie that actually helped you as a, an organiser or did it, did it just add to the strain? Oh, no, I think it was better to be known and to be seen. I I would talk to blokes. and I mean, I'd, in those days, everyone went to the pub on the way home. Everyone did. And um, I would talk to blokes, but then some blokes were a pain in the ass to put them on. Um, you, you'd say to them, look, I'm not talking, we're working here. But um, a lot of blokes just wanted to ask a simple question and they didn't get a chance to see her any other time yeah. sometimes. So that's how it was. Um, yeah, footy club... I ended up on the committee of the local footy club. So, you know, I guess some people think that union people are not involved with their local community. They are. My kids played a lot of sport and I was involved with the local footy club and for a long time. So, you know, you, you were just the same as anyone else. So there, I mean, the, the Libs don't think that. They think that um, union people have got a different head, but they haven't. And has that sort of culture changed at all in the... In the valley these days, I mean, obviously it's a lesser uh, amount of activity, but is the union still seen to be part of people's lives and the local official is seen to be someone they know and deal with on a regular basis? Well, yes, but it's not as much work now. So, you know, um, there's a lot of people um, had to leave here to work, to get fine work and casualisation. That, uh, the... You know, the privatisation of the instrument, state instrumentalities and then the casualisation of work is probably the two of the worst things that's happened in my working time. The casualisation is um, people who used to have a job, now they, they wait for um, a phone call for a bit of casual work. 
after I retired, I was did a union. I we, we back in our to, my time organising the first time round. We fought for a, a, a recognised position as a union convener, and we got it eventually. That wasn't easy. Uh, on on the major job, which was of course Lo Yang at the time, and then Lo Yang B. Um, so when I finished, I was asked by the unions to um, do the site convener's job on the shuts, but those shuts were just they they might shut one boiler down and do a major overhaul for six to eight to twelve weeks, once every say four years. And I, but because I when I finished in two thousand and twelve, I I think I've done one shut just about every year except I've finished now. I'm, I'm too old now, but uh, I have until last year. I've done one shot every year, which is good because it's kept my hand in and I've kept in touch with a lot of people. So still very much a part of the community down here. Oh, yeah, um, that's right. Well, there's not much else. I mean, we are, we only had the power industry and OPM and the oil industry. When I say only, they were very they were good jobs, but we fought hard to get those conditions in those yeah. jobs. You know, That's right. I suppose now is as good a time as any to talk about the industry funds. I mean, that's... I think that's probably a logical place to go because, uh, to be accurate, 1980s was where they took off. Yeah. We got portable long service leave in construction in 1975. We got super in uh, the early 80s, 82 and 83 and so on. And then... Late 80s, we got Incolink, the severance pay scheme. So let's go into that because you're still an official, you're still part of that process. Yeah, yeah. Well, certainly the um, portable uh, long service leave, that was that was um, a long time coming, as both of us know. We we're, were in the industry and we, I never ever got to, because of my time working as an official, I never ever, although I was, I was you know, I had a good job as an official both times, but... I never got enough time built up with the breaks I had to actually draw on Cowinvest, but I was one of the ones who fought for it, and it probably should have covered across more industries. Yeah. But it's a wonderful scheme, but we had to fight for it. It wasn't given to us. It yeah. was, um, I, I think it was at Carrum when we went to our first meeting. Yeah. And then, of course, there was uh, Seabus, which was started off as a bus. The building is, um, I'd have to say, uh, were the pioneers on that one. Um, as opposed to the metals. The metals followed up with Ost, but uh, building in one bus. Um, we at Loy Yang at the time had a, uh, we said, um, we, we'll, we, we, if, you, if you give it to them, they talk about a Me Too clause, well, we want it too, but we, we had to have a blue for it. And um, at the time at Loy Yang A, there was two 600-tonne uh, cranes working, so all we had to do was... Um, slow them down a bit because um, that just about, you know, pulled things up. And the owners of those cranes uh, or the, the managers of the companies, that was uh, Eglo and Transfield and EPT, they um, said to me, what do you want? And I said, well, it's not just what I want. I said, I want you to uh, be in the FEDFA office on Monday morning and I'll meet you there with, with Malcolm McDonald. And they said, look, they came in that morning, they said, we'll, we'll give you a super, but you can, we'll... We'll put you in transfer service scheme and we'll put you in Eglo service scheme, not our own industry fund. And, uh, we said, no, we don't want that. We want the industry fund. And we want it, cut a long story short. I think it was uh, $11 a week, something like that. Yep. Yeah, so that was good. And then we went from super, we, were, we had a 
Calinvest Superannuation Incard Link. Uh, that was took a while. Yep. You probably can recall that better than me. Yeah. First started and the, the boss used to hold the money. Oh, yeah, well, that's right. And then we got mm. the uh, Redundancy Central Fund and uh, that meant that the boss had to pay the money in each month and we could check up whether he paid it or not because a lot of people uh, might have uh, on their payslip each week have said that they were getting so much money but... Uh, a company could go broke and you had no hope of getting it, so it had to be a central fund. That's right. That's dead right. Yeah. That's been developed ever since. Yeah. What do you recall as the attitude of rank-and-file workers to those sorts of issues? Oh, they're very proud of being part of the campaign, the, the ones I know. I mean, there's always a few that, mm. that, that don't, but the majority of people are very proud of being... Uh, they have ownership of uh, being involved in the campaigns for all of the portable funds, and they're very good. I mean, um, just uh, 35 degrees is another one. I mean, we used to, at Carrum, um, there was no, you'll recall, there was, I remember we used to knock off on the old 100 degrees, not not 35, and we never got paid for it. We we just went home. And uh, working in the rain? Yeah, well, they tried that, but we wouldn't do it. There were some people did, wouldn't they? But uh, yeah. they, I mean, well, Carrum was a miserable place because oh. you could watch the uh, rain clouds coming across Port Phillip Bay, and uh, as soon as it got to Carrum, hit the beach, the clouds went south and the clouds went north, and had to keep working. But when it rained, it rained. That's right. And uh, yeah. I think, just to be honest, the first time I got the sack, there was because I. Uh, showed a little bit more uh, sensitivity to rainfall than uh, maybe my foreman thought was appropriate because I got dragged into the superintendent's office, but that sort of thing was pretty common. Yeah, it sure was. Uh, sure we were going down to Lysart's Hot Strip Mill um, some, a couple of years later and uh, we were basically rained off for eight days straight. They didn't want to pay us. Yeah. And we stayed in the sheds till we got the pay. That's right. But you know, it's a it was a different world. It was probably a bit rougher than it is these days. A little less civilized, maybe, but uh, it was certainly a world with uh, plenty of warmth and uh, comradely attitudes. Because, as you said earlier, people didn't get even their funerals paid for. You passed the hat for that. Yeah, nothing. No, there was no no portable funds, no, no, nothing at all. Yeah, we've probably come to the end of the uh, first period as an organiser. What happened to you then? Yeah, well, I resigned from organising simply because I'd... And I'll just briefly touch on this. I, I'm, I feel better if I do. Yeah. I'd supported the uh, amalgamation ballot in 1989 to form the CFMEU. And I'm fully aware that both yourself and a good friend of mine, the late Dave Pella, um, ran the no vote. Um, and I, I, I respected your position um, totally because I understood that um, the BLs were still trying to get their show going again even because you'd been deregistered in 1986, uh, which was a rough time for me because uh, I had a lot of mates who built a library, a lot of mates, and it wasn't good. And I said to... Um, Philip Tate at the time and Norm Russ who come after Tatey, I said, I won't uh, go out and patch your members, and I didn't. 
But unfortunately, a lot of them just came into the office because it was set up that way that they had to be in a union. Well, they needed to be in a union to get on a job. That, that's what uh, the government had done. They'd set it up. And the police enforced it. Yeah. Yeah, they did. That's right. So that was why I resigned. I'd See, I'd backed the amalgamation ballot because I believed it was the right thing at the time. Uh, and I still do, believe it or not. I mean, I think that uh, had, had it not been affecting the BLs, I know that was the messy part because I understood where they were coming from. And I spoke to Harry about it, although Harry had gone off about then. He was pretty sick, but then he lived for a long time after it. But there was Philip Tate and Normie Rust. And I remember we went to the... I tell a story about Philip Tate was a bit of a character. And... <laughs> One and only. Yeah, we went off to the commission and uh, on an issue, and we were all standing there. And the old fellow had come out, and before the judge had come out, it was before Justice Marks. And before he come out, uh, this fellow would say, "All stand." So we'd all stand. He'd go, "No, something like that." All stand, all rise. So out he'd come, and Tatey just sat down with his back to the bloke. You know, he, he wasn't going to stand up. So. That fella said to me, are you going to stand up? He said, no. He said, what's your name? He told him. That was it. There was nothing he could do about it. <laughs> so that was that one. Um, yeah. But in terms of uh, the amalgamation, it was actually the ballot was defeated. Two to one against. So that's why I resigned because I'd supported it. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I believed in it. So I didn't really have anywhere to go. Yeah, there were some people who, in the Victorian branch who hung around and that was their decision, but I, but they didn't all support it either, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I understood that. I mean, I, I never got personal about it. Never yeah. did. I, I mean, I used to uh, have a beer with John Cummins. Yeah. Well, let's just say there, there are a few people in the uh, FEDFA office who, uh, for reasons of their own, nothing to do with the rights and wrongs of the issue... Uh, assisted Dave Piller and me um, to help uh, run the campaign against the amalgamation. That's right, and I totally, as I said, I totally understood why, why, why the why the Beals didn't want a, another union, which would be a union basically competing for the same word. But one of them went on to become uh, the senior official during the ballot disappeared off to Thailand on a holiday. We won't go into that. <laughs> Righto. Now, so where did you get to uh, after you finished as an organiser? Well, I had finished and um, I was offered a couple of jobs. One, funnily enough, by that uh, task force that had been set up in Melbourne. Um, and I won't even give that any more air because yeah. I knocked that back. Of course I would. Uh, that was against the BLs um, and I wasn't going to do that, but I got a phone call to see if I was interested when I'd finished. And then I uh, got a phone call only the first week I'd finished in 1989 as an organiser and I was told that a person that I knew very well in the SEC, he said, uh, we'll be advertising for an IR officer on, on Saturday's age. And I said, oh, look, I don't think I could do that job, you know, coming from where I come from. And he said, well, you'll be work if you get the job, you'll be working for the client, you won't be involved with workers. And he explained it to me that I'd be dealing with contractors um, only, really, and uh, later on the, the job I did, and I'll get to that, it, it expanded where I did, this, I did the site safety officer for the client as well and 
then of course uh, I'll talk about that in a moment. But cut a long story short, I decided to apply for that job with the SCCV, but it was with their design and construction group. Uh, Eleven put in for it. I found out later when I got the job. You don't know that when you're applying. They give you a, a big selection criteria. The SEC had procedures like you wouldn't believe, and um, two got interviewed, so I knew I was down to two, and I, I got the job. And uh, I stayed there right uh, for another, pretty much right through the 90s uh, as an IR and safety officer at Loyang B, but we, but I had an involvement in a lot of other projects, anything to do with with project work because we were the division of the SECV that did that, including the demolition of Yulon A, B, C and D, oh, and E, all of the old Yulon power stations. We were project managing that. And so when Loyang B finished, I ended up out at Yulon. Um, and that was a job with the most asbestos you've ever seen, so I always hope I wore the right gear, but I tried to. So what sort of work did you do and who, what were the sort of people that you dealt with? Okay. Well, I was an industrial relations officer, so I, I had to talk to contractors every day, every day, um, because, as I said way earlier, there was an agreement known as the SECB Latrobe Valley Construction Projects Agreement, and I had to make sure that contractors were working in accord with that. And some of them used to be looking for ways where they didn't have to. They were trying to cut corners. They'd been given it as tender advice to, to win their work, but they used to whinge and say, well, we didn't. this is not our agreement, this is an agreement with the SECV. And I'd say, well, yeah, that might be so, but you were told to work to this, uh, to, to do your patch of work. Now, on, at, at Loyang B, there was at least 20 principal contractors and probably... Probably half of them had three or four subbies, so you can imagine the number of companies I was dealing with. And I'm talking about managers, not not workers, and that was why I was able to, in my mind, I was able to do the job. I wasn't, I wasn't um, out there doing anything. Uh, I couldn't work against workers; that was would go against my grain. But I was out on the job every day, and a lot of the workers come up and ask me what uh, questions, and of course I'd talk to them. And it turned out that a lot of the times I'd tell them things that they didn't know, that they were, the boss was ripping them off. So I was probably in a pretty good position there. Uh, and I also chaired the site safety committee. And we had a my project manager, a bloke called Dave Jones, was the project manager of the site. Uh, it's a massive job building a power station, as you can imagine. We didn't just build a power station, we built dredges, we built conveyors and or the conveyor system is massive, you know, bringing the coal out of, out of the open cut and through the coal bunker and into the power station. Um, so Dave Jones supported me because we wanted to make the site safety committee make it work. And he told the contractors officially by letter that the manager of each company, we had a site safety committee each month, a joint one, all contractors, that the elected rep and the manager of that company, not, you know, one of their office johns, the manager of that company and each company, he had to attend that meeting. Some of them didn't like it because they had to sit in a room full of elected safety reps from right across the whole job. And it was a room with um, probably 60, 70, 80 people in it, depending on who was on site at the time. As I said, there was 20-odd principal contractors, a big job. So I chaired that safety committee and I talked to contractors pretty well every day. That was my job. 
on how I wanted them to do the job because I was always out there talking to them about safety anyway. That was the first project that I knew in the valley that we introduced a full harness. Uh, at Loyang A, the uh, power station before that, they just had a belt around your belly. And if, if you had a fall, you couldn't hang long. Well, you can't hang long in a harness anyway, but if you... If you're, you're hanging from your belly, it's very dangerous. You probably might done you more damage than anything else. So these fellas were um, full harness, and we had some old riggers who didn't want to, didn't like it because they'd never they'd never been um, clipped on in their life. Yep. They, you know, they walked open steel yep. going back. Um, Scaffolders and riggers uh, did mm. not like it one little bit. No, no. Uh, I was working out of elevated work platforms. Slightly different matter, but working in the harness uh, was actually considered to be a uh, safety threat. That's right. That's right. The the lifts, if I could just speak about them, um, Transfield put the the core steel up for ICAL. In fact, it, by, by then they they probably owned. Um, they had started. It was a subby. I think they owned ICAL by then, and they had a like. Like an 80-ton beam was lifted by one crane 400 feet in the air. Uh, so you had to see it to believe it, really. The crane was reeved up, I think, about 20 times. It was 600 foot of boom in the crane to get it 400 foot in the air. And they'd hoist for probably four or five hours before you'd get that beam up to the top, and then you'd boom out when you've got 80 tonnes up in the air. So you can imagine the, the strain on the crane. But they did those lifts. Manitowoc, who designed them, came out especially for it because they, did, they hadn't done the, those lifts anywhere else in the world or what they built, what they did there. It was some big stuff. With health and safety, the Labor government, the Kane government, introduced in the mid-'80s the Occupational Health and Safety Act, which was a vast improvement on the old factories. Uh, Act and various other pieces of legislation that had existed uh, as the only safety requirements uh, at law. But the Occupational Health and Safety Act actually introduced rank-and-file workers to represent their workmates and to actually have a say in the process. And uh, how do you reckon that worked at the time and perhaps reflect how it's developed? I didn't think it was a good thing. At the time, I, um, like the Lifts and Cranes Act, for example, which I'm familiar with, I was at the time. They um, they brought into a, I don't know what it was called then, but it was a, it was more of a self-regulation rather than being policed by what we used to call the DLI. And we used to all have a blue book. We had the tickets in it as to what experience we'd had and what work we'd done. And we had to prove that we'd done time in the industry. Riggers today can get a bit of... Um, there's a lot of good riggers, don't get me wrong, but there's a lot of just got a bit of paper that says they're a rigger mm. and probably a scaffolder too. I'm not a scaffolder, so I've seen it worked with a lot of scaffolders, but I'm, I'm not a scaffolder. Yeah. But I'm a I'm plant operator and crone driver and dogman. Yeah, I am. So let's just mix and match this a little bit. In terms of the requirements to acquire and use skills, the bureaucratic system that existed, you reckon, was destroyed, as opposed to the involvement of workers in the analysis and organisation 
of the health and safety of work, which I would have thought was a good thing. We got mixed and matched a bit in this, and um, just interested in whether you think at the end of it all we have actually moved forward. Definitely so now, yeah. When you put it to me that way, and it's, you've just jerked my memory, I've been retired for a while. Um, <laughs> I'd have to say that doing your your work, you know, you have a look at the job, your job safety analysis, and and your step back procedures that you do today under the under the, today's regulations. Certainly, um, when we when I was doing that safety job at Luoyang, we, for example, if I can just use one job, what I just talked about the big lifts. We would involve the crane crew to sit down and say how they wanted to do it before they ever did it. And we got some terrific ideas out of that. Because I think the people that do the job, there's no one better to ask, is there, really? So, yeah, there's there's pluses with the new regs. There was, and I hadn't thought about that at the time when I said it wasn't a good thing. Um, Better than having um, procedures uh, that are written by a boss in the office and never put on the job, or by an engineer on uh, on the phone, or the uh, <coughs> shall we say the computer making uh, calculations and assessments, which don't necessarily uh, line up with the actual facts on the ground. Exactly, I think the Westgate Bridge is a perfect example, isn't it? Was it wasn't the workers' fault? Yeah. Now you sort of came back into construction, I think, if I remember correctly, because I was there. Uh, in the late 90s with uh, CityLink. Yes. Yeah, well, I was one of those ones that got put off with SCCV. As I said, there was no there was no job, so uh, you got to work. So uh, Transfield, who I'd had a lot of involvement with over a lot of years, said to me, um, you're interested in going to work on CityLink. Now, uh, TOJV, Transfield Obayashi, were building the tunnel and the overall... City Link, all the all the job. I think Balderson were their subby out there. Yeah. Otherwise, well, the Balti Bridge and the elevated roads they were the subby. Yeah, yeah. Um, I didn't work for TOJV, Transfordo I worked for Transfor Construction, who were a subby to Transfordo Bayashi for the mechanical electrical, and I ran inductions for that part of the work. Is not the people that originally built the tunnel. It was the people coming through doing the mechanical and electrical fit out. Um, and Transfield did a lot of that work themselves and they subbed, subbed the fire service work, for example, with sprinkler fitters and um, sparkies. They had a lot of sparkies um, with subcontractors so I had to induct all them and try to keep them in line. I worked with a couple of blokes, safety coordinators with Transfer Obashi. Unfortunately, they're both not with us now, um, Wayne Flat um, and Noel Winslet. So they were good blokes, very good blokes. Makes me a bit sad thinking about them. Um, and who was your boss? Anyway, well, <laughs> I'd say that out of, all, I think, 44 years, I worked in the industry um, either organising or um, 20 years of it organising and the rest was on the on the job, uh, would be the worst uh, bloke I ever worked for. Um, his name was Nick. I think that'll do, will it? Or, yeah, yeah. yeah, he, um, Transfield had every procedure known to man because I was a safety coordinator. I would run, a, run the induction, but they go out in the job and I'd stopped a job one day and he'd come running out and racing and told me that you don't stop the job and I said, well, they're not working to the procedure. Oh, you don't worry about that. Yeah, so only five months of that and I 
and Longford blew up, so I got out of there and went to Longford. Yeah. Yeah. And just for those listening, Longford literally blew up. Yeah, well, it was two people killed yeah. and people hurt, burnt bad. Yeah. Giant explosion. Mm. And so back to the valley, back yeah. to um, oil and gas. Yeah, well, what was I'd... that experience like? Because it would have been uh, not just the deaths but the devastation and the uh, mental psychological devastation too of the people who were there at the time. Yeah, well, some people that worked there would have never got over it. When you see the twisted metal that was right in the middle of the plant where it blew up, it was called King's Cross. It was always called King's Cross. It was where some pipe breaks crossed. It was just great big RSJs and um, beams and and um, columns, just twisted metal. It was just a wreck. And we were involved, myself and uh, another guy with... I, I got a job there as what was called a responsible officer, which basically all you were, which wasn't a bad job for a bloke that was 49-year-old, I think I was, when I went down there. Um, I got a job uh, um, as a responsible officer, which meant you just um, you had a gas meter around your um, neck and every hot work permit that was issued had to have an RO on that job after the explosion. The day over the explosion, there was no ROs at Longford. Interesting, isn't it? But yeah. um, every every hot work permit. So they'd issue a hot work permit for a particular job, they'd write the permit out and assign the RO. So we had 65 ROs working there. And I was, funnily enough, I I was their shop steward. <laughs> After being out... Oh, should I get yeah. to that? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah well... The start of the job, we, we didn't. Have, there was no agreement, and the unions, of course, uh, the agreement had, had, had ran out, and you know, ESSO had played hardball for a long time before that. Uh, but of course, they were in a pretty vulnerable position at the time. So there was a mass meeting called once we all got on the job, and they were calling for a ch- someone to chair the meeting. And um, I thought, you know, I've been out of this cave for a while. I'm just going to have a listen for a while. I would always be involved, of course, but I thought I'd have a listen for a while and they were calling for a chairman to chair the meeting and I'm talking all, all unions, like the metals, ETU, AWU, do have a fair bit to say in the oil industry. They were there and CFMEU, I think that's it. Anyway, they couldn't get a chairman and then, then Dove Pillar, who you well remembered, um, Ralph um, a champion bloke, he said, "Come on, Malone, get up here." So, I end up being the chairman of the of the of the meeting for probably half a dozen meetings, and then when I went back inside, the bloke had given me a job. I was working for Skilled; they were the company that employing the ROs. He said, "I thought you were going to lie low." I said, "I'm sorry, but I didn't have the say." So then I got elected straight away that day or the next day because I was the chairman. I got elected as their steward. But it was a good job putting the joint back together. So I lasted seven months there. So you can, uh, shall we say, take the boy out of the union, but can't take the union out of the boy. That's right. I couldn't help myself. Yeah, I, I enjoyed and it. And mm. you couldn't help yourself mm. when you got a second tour of duty with the FEDFA, which was by now part of the CFMEU. That's right. I did do a couple of jobs in town before, in, before that, if I just briefly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Sure. After after Longford, I um, I went to Abbey Group at um, Docklands, and um, I well I well remember. Yeah, well, you were my organizer. Uh, <laughs> you you and Maury Hill. <laughs> yes, indeed. 
And it was you were very good at what you did too. It was just to describe the work because this was the start of the development of uh, Docklands. The stadium was being built, and the site, well, the, the whole area, which was once part of very much an important part of the Melbourne uh, Wharf system, was uh, going to be totally redeveloped. Jeff Kennedy decided he was going to have another monument, not just Federation Square, but he was also going to have uh, a whole new suburb of multi-storey apartments down at Docklands. You didn't start at the top, you started at the bottom, didn't you? A bloody big hole there before it was finished. There was. The contract that Abbey Group had was to remediate the site of the original West Melbourne Gasworks. And you can, um, I would say, unfortunately, when they originally pulled it down, which uh, Longford originally would have would have replaced the West Melbourne Gasworks because they used to make gas there, uh, no different to the gasometer used to be on Macaulay Road at next to Arden Street. Um, a lot of that ground was badly contaminated and there were still tanks under the ground which were still full of um, all sorts of nasties. Oh, yeah. It was a it was a quite a contaminated site. So that was the contract to um, to remediate the the job. So. I was there for 18 months and it still wasn't finished when I left because I, I got a job at um, Eureka Tower with Grocon. So I jumped a ship and went over to, to Grocon for another 18 months and then the organising job came up where I was living in Melbourne and, and um, actually it was Tommy Watson and Noel rang me and said, are you interested in going home and working as an organiser? And I said, oh, yeah, but we better you know run it past the stewards and see because I'll, you know... I'd done the IR job at Loyang and everything. I thought I'd be right, but I wanted to make sure there wasn't going to be a problem. So we did that, and I, there was no problem. The bloke said, um, I, you know, I never forgot where I came from when I was doing the IR job, so I was right. I was straight back in. And I went back in 2002 and, and finished in early 2012. And in that time, you covered uh, quite a few jobs. A pretty mixed old bunch, if I look at the list here. Um, Everything from the uh, upgrade of the regional rail through to the diesel. That's right, that's right. It's it's a pretty impressive CV when you look at the jobs that are involved. Bass Link, East Link, Gippsland Water Factory, like so many different types of work. So really in that period... uh, uh, just on 10 years, you've really done all the jobs that you've done in the past again, in the sense that the variety of work, uh, some of them are civil jobs, some of them are building jobs, some of them are engineering jobs. It's uh, like a complete repeat. Yeah, it was. It was. We were going through a good time. There was a lot of work again. The Bass Link was interconnected from Victoria to Tasmania and... Um, couple of people had said they wouldn't build it and I can remember John Cummins ringing me and say, you get out there. <laughs> and we did. And we went and, and um, we did an agreement with Siemens and it was, um, it was a good project. It was a good agreement. It was. It was. Um, I had Norm Rust as the steward there. Norm took a little bit of control at times. <laughs> and I'll say that he's still a mate, but he uh, sometimes was hard to handle. Um, the regional fast rail, well, that was a bit hard because they were all over the place. 
East Link construction. Well, you know more about that than anyone, Ralph, but I um, I got sent down there by the FEDFA division for the first, well, for the earthworks, but I was very pleased when one day you told me you get, Mickey Powell was going to be put on full-time because I was trying to do the valley and that earthworks at East Link for the first 12 months. Uh, was, I didn't have, it wasn't enough hours in the day for me. But um, I did know all the players with the earthworks because most of them had come from the valley. Yep. So that helped. And it was, a, <coughs> excuse me, a huge job and it was uh, a job where Thies, as part of the Leighton's Empire, engaged uh, any number of people and did all sorts of uh, side deals with uh, other unions and uh, didn't exactly uh, welcome uh, the CFMEU to the job. And every, every day was a bit of a battle. But we had some good stewards on the job and we, uh, in the end, the agreement that was done with under the control of the AWU ended up an agreement with the CFMEU. That's right. And we had to battle. Uh, I remember part of I had to go and do inductions um, and the union wanted me to too as well. I yeah. um, had to do inductions at one of their big training centres where they ran them in, on Infantry Gully Road. And they'd always put the AWU on first, the uh, Julian Rezanowski. Rezanowicki. Okay. Uh, he was their IR bloke and uh, he'd always put the AWU on first. And Caesar Mallon would get up and say that uh, we at the AWU believe that the boss should have flexibility with RDOs. And, of course, that was contrary to what I believed in and, and the union believed in. So then I'd get up and say, well, I don't. Um, You'll, you'll have to uh, get special, there'd have to be special circumstances to work on RDO. So that was interesting, doing Eastlink, but as I say, it was we had, put, had good stewards on the job. I remember turning up at Carum, and the boss was a bloke I'd driven dozers with, uh, Bert Bailey was his name. Yep. And a uh, good bloke. And uh, he said to me, um, he said, see that list up on the wall there he said that's the cops number there on the top and he said I'm supposed to ring them every time you turn up here Malone and I said are you going to do it Bert he said no I haven't seen you <laughs> so that was very handy to know the job um, the bloke in charge of that earthworks for Thies below the supervisor the top blokes were uh, unfortunately he's dead too a bloke called Bobby Faithful yeah. um, I got on okay with him and I could ring him on my way down. We were supposed to give 24 hours notice, as you well remember, yes. because you were on that job more than me. There's no doubt about that. Um, we were supposed to give him 24 hours notice, but when nature of organising, very hard thing to do because, yep. you know, you, you might get a phone call that night, there's a bloke's need you on something. So I'd, on my way down, I'd ring Bob and say, look, I rang you yesterday, can you put my name in your diary? And because I did the right thing with him where I could... He would do that. So it was all about knowing people. Yep. If you don't have contacts, you've got no hope. You know. so that was that job. There was a little bit of uh, <coughs> some people up the top thinking they were running the job, but uh, yeah. our old mate, Greg Sparkman, Julia Reginawicki, uh, there was a whole group of them who uh, thought they were uh, in control. They thought they were, but we, we used to have a bit of a say too, didn't we? Well... The good thing was that uh, despite the fact that it was only a Commodore, it seemed to be able to go almost anywhere <laughs> along the length of that uh, project and uh, it got wet, it got slippery and uh, it often got exciting. But you survived all that and we get to the big one. 
So bottom of your list, the last one, the D cell at one thaggy. Yep. Now that is a job which stands out for a whole lot of reasons. One, the government at the time was a Labor government. Uh, they took a huge risk that they could actually make this work as diesel plants had got into trouble around the world and including interstate with some New South Wales, Queensland, South Australia where they'd also tried to do diesels because there was a, a drought that lasted for years. Interesting that it was a drought but it still kept raining. It just didn't rain very much. There's lots of drizzle. But the diesel was a significant investment and it was also a very complex job, huge job and very complex with a whole lot of different components, a whole lot of different unions, a whole lot of different subcontractors. So the agreement was absolutely crucial to uh, getting some kind of uh, proper organisation on the job because there was no way you were going to do it letting everyone just run free. How did you find the agreement? How did you find the, uh, the circumstances on the job? Well, firstly, the agreement that we used to sit down with, and I wasn't, I wasn't in the main negotiations. It was Noel Washington for the Fed for division, and I'm not sure who was doing it for the CFMEU, but Noel and well, I suppose we were fully integrated by then. So it was Noel. I think Noel had the main carriage yep. of negotiating the agreement. Um, but it, the best agreement going at the time was the Gippsland Water Factory Agreement. And it was the same sort of work, only because the D-cell was 10 times bigger. We'd built the Gippsland Water Factory transfer construction and we'd done a very good agreement. It was the, it was the best, best agreement based on a mixed metals agreement in the state of Victoria at the time. And then we, we of course, yeah, as you do, we flowed that on to the D-cell. And Noel did an agreement there along with other unions. And I, again, I only went there for the first 12 months with the dirt diggers and then Noel basically went down there full time. So there was no need for me to be there. And I had a uh, my steward from the water factory, Fergie O'Hay, unfortunately. Yep. He's not with us either. Um, yep. yeah. There's a whole lot of people that aren't with us any longer, which is really one of the disasters of the industry. But yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So he went there as a, as a one of the stewards and did a good job. Yeah. Very hard job to do. Um, the diesel. The people say, "Oh, you know, there was workers standing around doing nothing," but they weren't given any work. It was a very, very badly managed job. There was too many. I I think the problem was it was too many people on the job at once. Too big a job at once. Very hard to manage if you're a manage, if you're trying to run it. I would think because there would be blokes. Unfortunately, there'd be blokes standing around in groups having a yarn. And I remember saying to a couple of them one day, and I mean, I'm, an, I'm a union man, and I said, well, what's going on? Why aren't you doing something? I said, we haven't been given a job. But history will show that uh, they'll probably say that was industrial problems, yeah. and it wasn't. You know? No, and there was all sorts of other uh, stuff that going on at the time with uh, some people they engaged to uh, spy on people and... It was a very different project. Yeah, it was no and good. The story, and the story of the D-cell is yet to be written. And uh, maybe one day, as part of this uh, series of oral history interviews, we might get a few of the officials and, and delegates sit together and have a talk about what really was the D-cell story. Yeah. Because yeah. it certainly wasn't what uh, the media would try to portray it as. 
and there were some people there who were in management who got mixed up with some very uh, unsavoury people. Yeah, I think there's people better than me to do. Probably Noel and um, and John Thompson did a very good job there. Yeah, blokes like Joe Gregory and oh Geordie Ord. And there you go. Like yeah. all these blokes mm. who. Uh, mm who really did the taxpayers of Victoria a bloody big favour, but I don't think they're ever going to get appreciated. No, that's right. That's right. Which does lead me to um, a more general type of question, just starting to reflect on names and that. You've met a lot of people over the years and uh, you've worked with them, probably worked against a few of them too, uh, because they weren't union-minded, even though some of them claimed to be wearing a union badge, but... The sort of people that you worked with, rank and filers, officials, you know, officers of unions, you want to reflect on the contribution that some of those people made in your time. And a few of them have been mentioned as we go along. Yeah. Oh, well, I, um, Malcolm McDonald is a survivor. I'll say that. Um, when the BLs were deregistered, um, you know, we were the cut, the, the FEDFA enrolled a lot of their members and those people, the BLs, in, I'm talking about in town because I used to go to the, the branch meetings, as you probably did, Ralph. Yes. Uh, and um, I can remember blokes really, really giving it to Malcolm, but he, he, he he's a survivor. He, he took it. And, you know, we I, I hated the... Um, the D-Ridge. I, I, I just hated it. I, I didn't think it should have happened, and, but it did, and we, we inherited their members, and people joined us. So, of course, our branch meetings used to be pretty fiery. Oh, yeah. So Malcolm so Malcolm was um, a bloke that I always reckon, he, and, and he come to the valley too. There was plenty of blokes down here. When I say they're all good unions, plenty of blokes didn't like any official out of Melbourne. Yep. They just didn't like it. I don't know why. They just... You know, they, and, but he would front up. Well, can I just reflect on Malcolm? Uh, mm. Malcolm's already done an interview mm. on creatures of the industry, mm. and he's 91, and I tell you what, he corrected me on my memory several times, and he was right. And uh, he was supposed to do a second interview because he only covered a fraction of what he could have covered, and... Uh, he said he wasn't available because he had to have a hip replacement. Yeah, he's a guy. And I said, what do you need a hip replacement for? He said, I can't drive my car properly. Mm. So here he is, he's 91, i tell you what, he can drive. Yeah. He, he ain't putting himself and the worst rest of the population at risk, he can drive. He's, he is going an absolute treat. That's right, yeah. Yeah, he's, no, he's, he's one I always remember. I already spoke about um, Laurie Carmichael and John Halfpenny, they were blokes that I always remember. Um, well, I spoke about Harry too. I I didn't know Norm Gallagher much, so I can't speak about him. I know I know he did some very good stuff. I mean, very good stuff. I mean, the fact that um, tower crane drivers were paid more than tradesmen just shows that he knew what he was doing. He did his job. Yep. There was plenty of tradesmen used to go crook at me about that, but I used to think it was pretty good. <laughs> uh, who else would I say? Um, you know, I mean. There's plenty of blokes at Fedford, but gee, I might leave leave some out. Pat Preston was a very good operator, both um, both as a FEDFA official. He, he did the crane horror industry. It was a hard industry back when he did it, uh, and then it, he resigned at the same time as me for the same reasons in 1989. And but he went straight to the BWIU. I was offered a job by them, but I thought I'd when I 
had a job at home in the valley, I stayed in the valley. So Pat was a good, a very good operator. Maury Hill had his own way of doing things. Yep. Real, real, um, he's like a dog with a bone, Maury. He, he would just keep coming back till they said yes. <laughs> yes, indeed. Maury has been interviewed also on Creatures of the Industry <coughs> along with Pat. And, uh, yeah, good, yeah. And I rem- reminded Murray about uh, a certain uh, meeting we had up on Craigie Burn Bypass. Okay. And uh, we weren't getting anywhere with the uh, project manager. And uh, Murray chucked a wobbly and stormed out. And after a while, his performance obviously had, uh, had an effect on the project manager because he started conceding a bit. So I went outside after it was over and said, well, Murray, I think we got most of what we wanted. And he goes, oh, good, good. I said, but why did you do it? And he said, I couldn't think of anything else to say. <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, the performance worked, Murray. It worked an absolute treat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's lots of people. What about down in the valley too? There's, oh, well, as I said. You've mentioned a couple of people. Well, yeah, well, well Jim Ryan was, as I said, and Harry, I've already, I don't, I'm repeating myself, they were good. You know, I worked with so many different officials, it would be hard to um, say that Ted Turnbull in the early days with the ETU was um, was a was a good bloke to work with. You know, the rest of probably there's so many of them, it would be pretty hard to single anyone else yeah. out. Yeah. Anyway, you've mentioned quite a few of them, like Dave Pillar and so on. And uh, Oh, John Cummins, I should and, say that, and, but I've already mentioned him. Yeah, Sorry. and uh, Tatey and so on. Oh. So there's a lot of people have had a uh, impact in the valley and uh, with the agreements and all the rest of it. Noel Washington's work with the D-Cell agreement and so on. All good stuff. Now, yeah. looking back, what do you think are the improvements in the industry that you think should be celebrated and what didn't work? What uh, perhaps uh, was a bit of a waste of time or it was sabotaged or... Whatever. What's the highs and the lows and the the also ran issues and factors that you can recall in the last forty something years? Oh well, yeah, I'm sort of touching on what I've what I've already talked about a bit, but the privatisation of you know the state instrumentalities was a, something that I wish hadn't have happened because there was still room for contractors to uh, to do top up work as well as uh, keep a day labour workforce, which we haven't got anymore. And we wouldn't have the casuals that we got today. That's a, a big negative. The casuals, the um, portable schemes we touched on, they were they're um, you know they're incredible things. And the shorter hours. I mean, uh, apart from the I did we did talk about earlier the forty to thirty eight, but we also had a campaign when I was actually working at uh, Docklands with Abbey Group, as you would well yes. remember. 35. For the 35-hour week, nine-day fortnight, which we achieved there, uh, which was the th- ended up being 36 and nine-day fortnight. Um, and we've got an RDO calendar now that, um, you know, we can be proud of. That's something that I I think workers cherish, but not to have that RDO. And I think that's that was a, a big plus. Well, just um, going all the way back to the uh, Karam Shit Farm, we got an hour a day, if I remember correctly, for the, the labourers. We got an hour a day overtime and we would get a general work Saturday every now and then. We didn't get every Saturday. We didn't get only 10 hours a day, Monday to Friday, all that stuff. 
but we didn't have an RDO. But my thinking is that the quality of life has improved for construction workers big time with the RDOs and the calendar. Because what was normal, you might go in for a few hours on a Saturday morning if you got some work and it wasn't everyone on the job, and you might get an hour in the, in the afternoon or something. But you had the weekends, you had the public holidays, you didn't work shift work. I mean, those sort of things were not part of construction. But right through the 80s into the 90s, they started cracking the whip and wanting more and more hours and people became dependent on it. And the only way we were going to give people a decent uh, lifestyle, I think, is the RDO system with a set calendar. Absolutely. And the um, the four tens and two eights, which kept a bit of sense about it. Yeah. Because um, some people um, would have worked more than eight on the Friday and Saturday if they could have. Yeah. Some of our own people, were, unfortunately. Yeah. They just get a bit greedy, don't they? You know? And that meant that we had a you know, um, people had leisure time as well. Because we have on the way through mentioned that there are some people who are no longer with us and there are some people who are no longer with us because... The system uh, chewed them up and spat them out. That's right. Yeah, the, yeah. And some took their own lives and some uh, just simply ended, their lives ended early because of all sorts of health issues and so on. Yeah. yeah. And i just glad to see that you and I are still here after all the, all the last 40-something years. Well, a lot of them gone, isn't it? Yeah, that's indeed the case. Is there anything else you'd like to reflect on? general terms about the industry and your time in it? I've probably said enough. Um, I suppose being a Valley person, and I know it's not going to happen, but I I wish they could do something with the coal. Um, But I do understand the environment. But I uh, believe we've got this resource here. I just hope maybe uh, they're talking about using it to to make hydrogen. Perhaps that'll work. I don't know. But um, I don't think we're going to have major industry here probably ever again I mean if we lose Maryville we're, we're in, we're in, it's all over then because the power stations they're not going to build anymore we know that which you know I'm I'm probably the wrong person to ask I, 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 I feel that we should be we should be using it somehow but not, we're not so in reflection I wish we were but we're not uh, and probably likewise with the oil industry it's probably on the way out too but I think we're going to have um, we're going to have power shortages. Honestly, though, because you know you can have all the the wind and the um, <laughs> what, what, sun uh, in the world, but if it's not wind's not blowing and the sun's not shining, I don't know what's going to happen. Oh uh, well, we'll just have to turn Vaseline on. Yeah, <laughs> well, they're going to build another one of them. Yes. Yeah. Yes. But um, plenty of times the wind turbines, when it's blowing too much, they can't. They lock them out. Yeah. You can't go. You know so. I think we still need baseload power. That's probably what I'm saying. Of course, I'm probably a, a minority today. Righto. Well, Tom Malone, thank you very much for your time in the industry and your time today. And uh, I'll let you uh, into a secret after the show as to how long we've actually gone for. You might be surprised. Thanks very much, Ralph. Anyway, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to Tom Malone, a resident a worker and a union official in the Latrobe Valley, which, as we've heard, once used to be an absolute uh, engine room of work 
in construction and very other and various other fields. And uh, Tom played a big part in it. And uh, thank you very much indeed. Creatures of the industry, an ongoing series of oral history interviews about the building and construction industry in Melbourne and regional Victoria since the 1960s. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.